I went to Calvary West Covina. I went to the pastoral school, so that's where I'm from. Yeah, and uh, I, I went for three months before before the Lord called me out to the Bay Area. But um, I like like I said earlier, I, I've been a pastor in Oakland for I'm going on 18 years now. Uh, so yes, I started the ministry when I was about 10. Um, <laughs> no. I, I, I don't know why, I just look much younger than I really am, I guess, but um, as I was listening to all you guys, I, I, I kind of looked over my own notes or thought about my notes and thought I did not prepare for the right thing, and, and, and a whole new sermon came into my mind on this, so I'm asking for your patience because I'm processing as I'm talking. Um, but um, I was asked to talk about discipleship, which is something that I'm really passionate about. But I, I, what, I, what I prepared more of was more like a technical way to go about things. But I don't think that's what you guys need to hear. I, I, I think most of you guys are pastors, and you probably know how to do that. And if you don't, then you probably shouldn't be a pastor. So, um, <laughs> like, that's an essential. So I kind of want to take it a different way and maybe frame things with, thinking about who the most influential person in your life has been and how that person has influenced you and what was it that they influenced you with. Because with that background, I think it can help us think about who we are and what has shaped us. And then you can look at a person that you're ministering to in our urban context and think about where they've come from in their history and how to minister to that person as well. Um, I, I also have to say that I'm extremely humbled that Justin, you invited me um, to even speak about this subject matter because um, after I saw that you also invited Ray Baki, I have no idea why you don't just have him here for the entire time. Like, so, <laughs> so um, that being said, um, I, I am very humbled. Um, and let me just define kind of discipleship really quickly and, and disciple, and then we can talk further. So as a disciple, I, I am learning how to be, be like Jesus from where I'm at, right? That's essentially uh, what discipleship is. It's this um, consistent, routine practice of obedience from my heart that hopefully will lead to an inward change that is more like Jesus, that I'm an imitator of Jesus, that I'm a continual student of Jesus. Now, because I'm learning how to be like Jesus from where I'm at, and I'm a disciple from where I'm at, this is the hard part um, from our urban context, which I think is Yes, it's hard no matter what. We have the same enemy. But there's something different in terms of what we're dealing with in terms of density. And I'm sure Dr. Baki has a very good definition of what urban is and inner city is and all those things. But in my mind, I'm thinking what we really deal with is a, is a high density of diverse people. And that's what makes it really hairy. Um, it is, it, you can't throw the same fastball and you have to have more than three pitches and in order to kind of hit that strike zone. And so that's what makes it really, really hard. And so I, I come from a city where over 20% of the people that live in that city are below the poverty line. I live in one of four resettlement cities 
of all of Northern California. So the mission field is coming over to us. We, we don't even have to go out there. We, we started a coffee shop. We partnered with another church, a Presbyterian church, and starting a coffee shop. And in that coffee shop, it all it, it's just ministering to refugees. We give them the vocational training to... Um, provide jobs to them. And they're coming from Iran, Bhutan, Cambodia, um, Pakistan, Syria. They're, they're coming from all over the place. I don't know how it's going to be affected with Trump enacting these other things, but that's where they were coming from. And we were able to minister to all these folks. And it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, but that being said, like we have a place where last year we had uh, 87 murders. And out of those 87 murders, there were 1,090 reported shootings. And so there were 1,000 shootings where the people were just very bad shots. Or we had really good doctors at Highland Hospital, which is if you got shot, you want to go to Highland Hospital. They'll save your life. And so this is kind of the place where I minister at. It is the third most violent city in the United States, according to Forbes. Um, there are 1,683 violent crimes per 100,000 residents. So there's so much anger in that dense urban setting, right? And it's, it's probably with the rest of us. We have this density where you just have the complexity of people and diversity all in one place, and that leads to that anger, it leads to that covetousness, it leads to a greater depth of contempt, condemnation, judgment, all of that stuff, of course, exists in all contexts, but it seems to be heightened. There's a greater concentration of it in the places where we minister to, and so there's a whole slew of other complex issues other than density, but there it is to some of that. So in the midst of all that madness is the necessity for discipleship. And as we place our faith and trust in Jesus, he replaces that anger that people have and that contempt and that covetousness and those things. And those are the things that we are to help disciple people through. And there's this mystery to discipleship, but I find it to be rather simple. And it's the simple question of asking whether we are really students of Jesus. And please don't get me wrong here. I, I know we're all Calvary Chapel, and, and so I'm just going to parse through some verses, um, but not your regular expository passage. But I want to take a look at Matthew chapter 7, and I want to take a closer look at just two verses here, verses 13 and 14, where it says, the way through, <clears throat> through narrow and wide gates, right? And so I think there is a thought that these gates, I've heard it taught before, that this is in regards to doctrinal correctness. That, you know, you have to have a certain view on doctrine, and that's the narrow, and then the wide is like everything open. And I want to push back on that and challenge that, that that is not the interpretation. That narrow and that wide gate is more about obedience. That, that you have this this narrow gate is about obedience and that we have to trust Jesus in order to obey him. And it can't be doctrinal correctness because many people who don't understand correct doctrine end up putting their trust in Jesus. And there are also who, many who have correct doctrine that 
have these hearts of unforgiveness and this refusal to forgive and they have this anger and they have this lust and contempt and all these types of things. So it's not doctrinal correctness because we know that Satan and the demons, they have correct doctrine, right? They know it. Like if they were to, if they were to take a test with us and we'd take a doctrine test, they would stomp us. They know correct doctrine. The thing they don't have is they don't have obedience. They're not following Jesus. And so in us teaching and discipling people, I would challenge that more so than teaching them correct doctrine, which is very, very important, is to undergird them with the obedience to Jesus and to equip them with how to be obedient and to work on those issues of the lack of forgiveness or the lack of reconciliation, the lack of restoration that they have towards people and, and working towards those things. And I think it's really, really important to understand when we're ministering in an urban context because we can get so caught up in our tribe's doctrinal correctness. I also, I, I don't wanna talk bad of our tribe. I, I love our tribe, I've been with our tribe for close to 30 years. And so, I, and I'm still in it. But there are people who are not in our tribe and yet they are we don't consider them following us, but that does not mean that they're not equally part of the kingdom. And so that's, I, I love the, what's happening with all these churches in Bellingham getting together and worshiping together and working together. See, because we need to be able to bridge across those differences, those different tribes, and this is something we need to model because if we as the church don't model this peacemaking, and this reconciliation and this restoration, how can we give that hope to those who are battling on the drug, drug corners? And how do we battle them when the, the prostitutes are walking on their tracks? How are we battling on those and ex extending peace and extending reconciliation in those settings if we can't do that even within the church? And so these are some things that um, are coming to my mind and, and wanting to, to talk about. And, and to frame that with scripture, we, we look at Mark chapter 9. Mark 9, verses 38 through 40, it reads this, and this is um, John talking to Jesus, and he says, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. This is a really, really fascinating story because these guys are trying to put a stop to someone who's doing something in Jesus' name. And why are they doing this? Well, if we, if we look back several uh, verses before, in chapter 9, verse 18, it reads this. The disciples weren't able to cast out a demon from a young boy. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he fo foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. See, I think they tried to stop that guy because they couldn't do what they used to be able to do. Because right before this, in Mark chapter 6, what happened there? Jesus sent them out two by two and they were healing people like crazy. And then when we get to chapter 9, the transfiguration happens. And so uh, John, James, uh, and Peter are, are up on transfiguration. The other nine are at the bottom and they are 
trying to cast out the demon from this little boy, but they can't do it. A little later on, this guy from who knows where is casting out demons. And so they're saying, stop, you're not following us. You're not one of us. And then Jesus later on says, this demon only comes out by prayer. Here's something that's really, really dangerous, I think, within ministry and urban context. We have so many issues and problems that we have to deal with. Gentrification issues, education inequity, sex trafficking, drug trafficking, gang violence, mass incarceration. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. Refugee resettlement, immigration reform, it goes forever. In an urban context, the dartboard is all a bullseye. You just throw a dart and you hit it and it's, a, it's an issue. You have to deal with it. And so we come up with all these programs and we come up with all these social justice initiatives, which are very great. But one of the things I've been involved with and have seen is that we haven't been praying. And this is something I really appreciate, Jordan, that you kind of centered it all back and said, hey, after five, guys, let's pray. Because if you compare Mark 6 to Mark 9, these guys were on it, and they had so much going on. They were healing people. They were delivering people from demons and all this stuff in Mark 6. And then in Mark 9, they can't deliver one boy. Nine of them can't deliver one boy from demons, whereas before it was just two by two, and they were doing amazing things. And so I think this is something that we need to remind people of in our urban context. The power of prayer. We can get so busy doing stuff starting the cafe, feeding the homeless, all these different things that our churches, I think it's great that we do them. We do them in Oakland. But we can't forget prayer because in order to be like a bigger thing, a God thing, we actually need to invite God, right? And, and so some of the problems that I've seen is I've been a part of so many different clergy cohorts in the Bay Area. I've been part of like all of them. And this is one of the most disappointing things is that some of them have, most of them, unfortunately, have been going on and they can go on without Jesus. They are just programs. They are just initiatives. They're just doing these good works without the power of Christ. In that their theology is not forming their program. Their theology is not forming their sociology. It is rather their sociology or their politics that is forming their theology. And we can't mix that up. You know, like I said earlier, we, our, our church does serve the homeless. Every Sunday morning we have a homeless breakfast. Uh, depending on the weather, if it is sunny, we will have like 30 people um, if it is raining, we will have over 300 people, right? So it, it just kind of depends on the weather and whether people want to stand or whether they need to come in. And, it, and it's homeless folks to um, folks that are underemployed. And so we have this feeding every Sunday morning. And then on Friday nights, we go out to where they are, wherever they're living, and we check in on them and see, you know, how are you medically? Do we need to get you to medical care? Do you need a sleeping bag or, or socks or what, whatever you need? And we, we try to do this uh, ministering. And the, the cool, cool thing about this is that it's not just us. That we have partnered with 
all sorts of churches, Christian Missionary Alliance, Covenant, Presbyterian, Baptist, um, Dutch Reformed, all, all various churches, and we don't agree on all of our theology. There are, there are theological things that we are not in agreement with, but our theology does drive all of our sociology, and we can agree on that. And we, we, we might not have each other's teaching about theology in our respective pulpits, and, and we might not invite each other to do that much because maybe that's too much, but we can partner in serving the homeless in our community based on our theology, an agreed theology. Please be patient with me. I have a lot of stuff that um, I don't really need to share here, like I said earlier. Um, I want to share, I guess, my story. When... um, I went to Azusa Pacific University. I studied biochemistry. I graduated. I got a job at an investment management company. I had been estranged from my father for eight years. I hated him for how he treated my family. Um, Didn't talk to the guy for eight years. And out of the blue, he calls me. And then he asks me, um, hey, can you move in with me? Because I'm going to get evicted, and I have no place to go, and I'm going to be on the street. And in my head, I was thinking, good, you deserve it, and I want you to go on the street. But something held back my tongue. And then I called who I would deem my discipler. And he was my Old Testament theology professor at Azusa Pacific, and I, and I talked to him, and, and he encouraged me to honor my father and my mother. And so I said, okay, I'll honor my father, but how do I do that? Do I just pay for it? Do I whatever... And he said, why don't you move in with him? I was like, no way. Like He lived in this one-bedroom place, and um, he was sleeping in my bunk bed that I grew up in. And after a period of a week, I agreed to move in with my dad, who I never even roomed with anyone, even in my college years. I had my own separate room, and here I am working in investment management, making pretty decent money, and I'm rooming with my dad on a bunk bed. And it was very humiliating. But during that time, that discipler of mine was able to teach me about restoration and reconciliation, honoring my dad. And then we were able to become really good friends. And so now we're very good friends and we talk often and, and, and these things. I share the story because um, I find myself so much like that rich young ruler in that Jesus was sharing with that rich young ruler, if you turn to that part of the passage, you notice that he shares all the commandments that are with one another. And growing up, I was a goody-two-shoes kid. Never took a drug, never smoked, got A's. I was doing all the good stuff and everything that was lining up right, and I was that rich young ruler. And it wasn't God, when Jesus confronted that rich young ruler, he told that rich young ruler, oh, it's great you followed these, but essentially, like, you're not following the ones that are dealing with God, though, like a false idol, right? 
It doesn't say that there, but it's, I, I guess it's pretty much implied because it's talking about riches. And he points out essentially like these are the ones that you didn't follow. And so I really got convicted about you are not following this one about honoring your father. You have all these other ones, but you're not doing that one. And it took someone in my life to point that out. And we have the very honored position to be able to point those things out with the people we minister to. And it's not just about providing a social justice remedy, but it is to get into a deeper place, a spiritual place, to point out the things that are really separating people from God, to help them follow the way of obedience, which requires a change. And he's, he asks us whether we are going to follow him, not, not just admire him. And so when we want to pay respects to Jesus and having reverence and all those things. Those are, those are great things, but that obedience piece, it, it needs to be there. And so when we're talking about the wide gate and the narrow gate, this, the narrow gate is, is about that obedience. It's not necessarily cramming people with all the correct things to believe in because demons and Satan believe those things too but they don't have the obedience piece. I think um, that's the main crux of what I want to say. Um, one last thing. At the end of Matthew, Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples. The the, the commanding word there is not to go, but it's to make. And so I think a lot of times we tie our ministries to location, to go to a certain place. But that's not the main crux of that. It is to make disciples. To make people who can be obedient, who are able to hear and listen to the word of God, to be able to sense the Holy Spirit and then live those things out. We're not sent out to make converts or sent out to make disciples. Um, oh, one last thing I do want to talk about. In the Bay Area, we often have um, a mentality of exodus, and what I mean by that is um, there's a promised land mentality. If I land that good job, if I get the stock options, if I get whatever I need to get from this to get to my next place, then I'll go do that, and I'll just move from place to place, and I'll I'll land in my promised land. But as Christians, we are to live lives of exile. Right? We are to live an exilic life. And so knowing that this is not our landing place, but this is kind of like that journey of going on and on, which is a really important concept to get across because I think this is where we misrepresent um, what God can have for us. Many people in the barrier believe that this world is everything we can hope to have. And what Jesus does is he, he reverses this and he delivers us from this kind of small mentality because we're naturally drawn to smallness. That's, that's why we have our, our fortress mentalities. That's why we, we try to get everything that we can right now. And so the upwardly mobile people, they, they spend more time 
planning those vacations and those career advancements and retirement much more than they would ever think about their everlasting life. And then the people in the hood, they spend more time defending their corners, defending their tracks, because they also have that fortress mentality to defend that smallness and be drawn to smallness. And what Jesus does is he, he reorders that relationship and that reordering actually causes us to move toward pain to move toward vulnerability, to move towards a greater thing that is away from the fortress mentality and it's not into our self-interest, it's not into self-preservation. We move towards those things. That's the life of exile. That's how we move from small to great. And, and we are going to greatness by moving toward pain, by moving toward vulnerability. And so when we are thinking about going into an urban context, that is what we're inviting into our lives is that pain and that vulnerability that the people experience to a, a, a huge degree. And so we are not to point them into a, a exodus mentality. We are to point them into this exilic mentality with us. And so as we allow Jesus to disciple us, we, we move beyond just faith in Jesus and have, moving, have us move towards the faith of Jesus, that we occupy that. And so I want to end with Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That's Jesus' call to discipleship, and it, it's so tender. He's not heaping more burden on people whose lives are already overburdened. Some of the people we serve are truly, truly burdened. One of my daughter's uh, best friends in her youth group is a Lat Latina girl um, whose rent just went up uh, this past month for her single mom. And she has three other siblings, so there's five of them living in this one apartment all in one house, and, and she works 16-hour days. And then the aunt who lives down the street checks in on them. And then she was just praying at, at, on the Sunday service that she would just have a roof over her head next month. My daughter came up to me and just uh, shared, like, Dad, I, I get what you mean now about um, not everyone gets to go on a vacation because we, we went on a vacation during her spring break and she was complaining about not having a bed in the hotel room because we all cram in their bed. We, we all cram into one hotel room and the kids sleep on the floor and me and my wife get the bed and I'm like, you sleep on the floor. And, and she was like, oh, this is not fair. And I was like, hey, you're in a hotel room, you're getting, uh, so don't complain. And so this came in right after that. And so she came up to me right after and she was like, dad, I, I get it. Like not everyone even gets to go on a vacation. Um, my friend is, her mom is contemplating working more than the 16 hours and she's also gonna put the living room up on, on rent so that some other family can rent the living room and then they can move into the bedroom so that they can afford to live there, I, I get it. 
the urban context can be really brutal and sad. But it can also offer like really great lessons to someone like my daughter to have her be able to see the real world and to empathize. And so I, I kind of wonder what kind of gospel are we sharing with people? That exodus, that promised land gospel that it's just kind of like prosperity and everything's going to turn out good or is it more an exilic one? You know, are we discipling people to be able to see the kingdom properly that we are to be moving towards pain and vulnerability and, and you notice the three command words there in those verses that were just read. Come, take, and learn. And those are really important words relating to discipleship. Come, take, and learn. See, God will not make us do things. And, he's, and you, you notice that he's not saying go, give, and teach. Right? It, it's come, take, and and learn and, and doing those things of going, giving, and teaching, it actually is a burden. Isn't it a burden to prepare for things and, and give and teach and like but these other things that come, take, learn, those aren't burdensome. Those are just receiving things. Right? And so we, we, we need to consider those three words, come, take, and learn, as we reflect upon our obedience to Jesus and, and this subject of obedience is really important to grasp because there's a huge difference between obeying and not. And within discipleship, it is critical. Not so much like what you're teaching in terms of the correct doctrinal stuff, which I'm not saying is not important, but it's not to supersede that of living a life of obedience. Thanks.